let's return to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and this morning we will at long last finish out Jesus' extended discussion with the Jerusalem Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. And as you turn, I want to remind you of the oft-cited words of C.S. Lewis. He writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him or Jesus. That's this. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. In reading John 8, I wonder whether Lewis had this passage in mind when he wrote those words. In John 8, the Jews have made their choice. In verse 59, we read, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. For the Jews want to crush Jesus' skull, to collapse his lungs, to splatter his blood and his brains in the temple. Well, what has Jesus said that provokes such a gruesome response? Let's back all the way up to chapter 7 and verse 1. And let's review and get a running start at it once more. Jesus, in chapter 7, verse 1, is still in Galilee, just before coming south to Jerusalem for the feast. And verse 1 relates that Judea in the south was already hostile toward him. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, Jesus did end up going down to Judea, showing up in the middle of the feast. And immediately, his appearance was controversial. Look at verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Jerusalem rabbis were Israel's best and brightest teachers. But Jesus had actually never sat at their feet. In a small community like Israel, it was unheard of for a master teacher to suddenly appear, having never been mentored by one of these Jerusalem leaders. And Jesus' response was calculated to garner attention. Verse 16. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know that the teaching, as Jesus' teaching, is from God, or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus claims my teaching comes from God, not one of your local rabbis. So friends, what if a very capable teacher started attending our church? And we asked him, well, where did you go to university? Where did you go to seminary? And what if 
he responded the way Jesus did. He came directly from God. Would you be a little bit suspicious? How about if he said what Jesus said in verse 29? I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. How do you respond to that person? On the final day of the feast, in the midst of the water ceremony, celebrating Yahweh as a sustainer and the provider of the early rains, Jesus makes yet another audacious statement. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus did not say, whoever believes in God, but whoever believes in me, as if he were God's equal. So now, how do you respond? When the officers and the chief priests came to arrest Jesus, they failed. Why? Verse 46. No one ever spoke like this man. But the indignant Pharisees retorted in verses 47 and 48, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Well, those two responses represent the dilemma that Lewis speaks of. You must embrace Jesus' words or utterly reject him as a deceiver. Neutrality is not an option when you're confronted with the words of Jesus. And now in John chapter 8, Jesus makes yet another audacious claim. Not only is he the water of life, look at John 8 and verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. All living organisms depend on water and light, or the heat that light generates for life. And Jesus claims to be both water and light. Then Jesus proceeds to tell the most self-righteous people in verse 21 that they will die in their sins. Now imagine that. The Jews devote their whole lives to purifying themselves, making themselves ready to meet their God. And Jesus comes along and says, nope, you're going to die in your sins. And Jesus then said in verse 23, I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And further, apart from believing in him, there is no hope that the Jews can be rescued from their sin. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And if that isn't enough to rankle the Jews, Jesus proceeds to challenge their false notion of freedom. They are not free merely because they are children of Abraham. Instead, Jesus claims in verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, 
And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, do you understand now why the Jews were so upset with Jesus? He claims their father is the devil. Not Abraham, the devil. And now do you understand why it is the Jews pick up stones to murder Jesus? C.S. Lewis was correct. Neutrality is not an option when you've been confronted with Jesus. We come now to the end of this hostile exchange. The Jews believe they now understand that Jesus has a demon, that he is truly an imposter. That Jesus, for his part, will make his identity perfectly clear. So let's read verses 48 through 59. Jesus answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? When the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And the whole conversation clearly comes down to two possibilities. Either Jesus is a demon a child of the devil. For Jesus is the great I am. One with the Father. And we can say that another way. Either the Jews are children of the devil, and Jesus is the Son of God. Or the Jews are the sons of God, and Jesus is the child of the devil. That's what it comes down to. Lewis got it right. Jesus is God, or he is the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Neutrality is not an option. 
So with that in place, let's work our way right back down through the end of this dialogue between the Jews and Jesus. In verses 48 through 49, the Jews clearly have run out of our arguments with Jesus. So at this point, they just resort to abusive language. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The Jews here are employing a racial slur, calling Jesus a Samaritan, and then accusing him of demon possession. Now, it's hard to say what the Jews were getting at by calling him a Samaritan. This is, in fact, the only place in the Gospels where we read of this particular accusation. But we do know that the Jews despised the Samaritans as mixed blood, part Jew, part Gentile. And tragically, history tells us that where racial antagonism runs deep in a culture, the children of intermarriages are mercilessly abused. That has happened all through human history. When I was growing up, there was a family in our church who had a black father, a white mother, and two boys. And a deacon and a Sunday school teacher in the church told me the marriage was tragic. And the boys would never know who they were. And I said, if one's identity depends on the color of his skin. Of course, what he should have said is that our identity is found in Christ. Friends, if that happens in the church, we can only imagine how terribly the world is often treating such individuals. And that's still true in many, many parts of the world today. What the Jews just seem completely ignorant of is actually how much intermarriage there was in their own history. It's right there in the Old Testament. David himself, a descendant of Ruth, had Gentile blood. Solomon's own mother was likely a Gentile. Moses' sons, Eliezer and Gershom, had a Gentile mother. And so too did Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Ever heard of those guys? They were half Gentile. Their mother was Egyptian. Now, this is the whole other message that the Bible does, in fact, celebrate what has been called interracial marriage. But here, the Jews just accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. And worse yet, in verse 48, the Jews assume that Jesus is actually demon-possessed. In Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel, the Jews actually resorted, if you recall, to a similar, a similar accusation where they could no longer explain away his miracles. They simply attributed them to Beelzebub. Oh, we understand. You are empowered by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So again, Lewis got it right. Jesus is God or he is Beelzebub. There's no neutrality. So Jesus responds swiftly, insisting once again that God was his father. That's verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And the implication of those words is that failing to honor Jesus, you are not, in fact, honoring God. Now, have you ever been in a very hostile conversation, and you realize that you're just not going to get anywhere with that person? You've had a conversation like that. 
It's not like you just got to take that whole matter and just kind of leave it in God's hands and let him be the judge. Actually, there's a precedent for that because that's exactly what Jesus does next. That's verse 50. Jesus simply says, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In other words, Jesus is content at this point to leave the issue of his paternity to God. He's not seeking his own glory. It's not what he's after. And like the Jews who pride themselves in the Abrahamic lineage, who take extraordinary pride in their Jewishness, Jesus is not looking to glorify himself. That's not his concern at this point. God will glorify him in due course. That is sufficient for him, so let's just leave the matter to God to judge. Jesus then wants to refocus the whole discussion to his central mission. Let's get back on track. What's the mission? And the mission is the offer of eternal life through belief in his words. That's verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. So again, just leaving the paternity issue aside, he circles back around to the Jews' genuine need. They must embrace his words or perish. Many years ago, I was in downtown Denver with a friend. We were witnessing along the 16th Street Mall, a very famous mall in downtown Denver. And we came across a group of people, including a very, very outspoken young lady, and they wanted to engage us in conversation. But soon enough, it became apparent this was no friendly conversation. And these people had no interest in Jesus whatsoever. And the more we began to explain our faith, the angrier they got. And it became apparent that conversation isn't going to go anywhere. So my friend and I just simply said, look, you've got to embrace the words of Jesus or perish. And we left it at that. And we moved on. Well, sometimes that's really all you can do with people. The Lord reached in his own good time, but leave him with the words of Jesus and move on. That's verse 51. Now, in verse 51, Jesus also says something very intriguing. What does he mean at the end of the verse when he says he will never see death? On my desktop computer at home, I have a little UBC folder. It's quite a large folder at this point. Full of all my UBC documents, sermons, agendas, PowerPoints, everything related to our church. And if you click on that folder, inside is another folder called Funerals. And it contains sermons that I've preached at UBC for believers who worship in this very room with us. Women and men like Sarah Garvin, Belle Stump, Nancy Leinbaugh, Noel Garvin, Pat Robinson, Lori Meisner, Wana Mae Davis, Bill Meisner, and Sarah Walton. I don't think I ever preached a funeral here without thinking about these words. He will never see death. So what does that mean? He will never see death because we know that when you die, the body goes in the grave. We know that the man or woman never comes again to our communion table. 
But Jesus says that saint truly never even experiences death. In some sense, they never actually experience death. But what can that mean? Well, the New Testament elsewhere describes believers as merely falling asleep. Have you ever done that? Ever tried to mark that exact moment when you transition from being awake to being asleep? It just, it just happens like that. In other words, the transition from this world to the presence of Christ is just instantaneous. It's quicker than the blink of an eye. I mean, you just release your last breath and you open your eyes and there's Christ. You exhale a breath and you're in the presence of the Lord. That's how it works. He will never taste death. A funeral that often cited a few lines from the writer Octavius Winslow, who was an 18th century preacher from whom uh, C.S. Lewis, not C.S. Lewis, but um, Spurgeon, Spurgeon, uh, often quoted. In a work titled The Precious Things of God, Winslow devotes in his final chapter to an exposition of Psalm 116, verse 15. That psalm reads, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And here's what he writes. Is it death to die? Approach that chamber where the saint of God is departing. Enter with a hushed footstep. For solemn is that scene. Sacred is that spot. It is the verge of glory. It is the expanding gate of heaven. Celestial beings, viewless and noiseless, are there. Angels and the spirits of the glorified hover round that bed. The triune Jehovah is there, the Father watching the child he adopted, the Son upholding the soul he redeemed, the Holy Spirit strengthening the heart he made his temple. Is this the chamber of death? The last enemy, the final conflict, the closing scene? Surely the spirit joy, the soul sunshine, this victory of faith, the stupendous, glorious triumph of immortal over mortal. Is this death? The silver cord is loosed. The panting spirit born on the wing of song has swept upwards into the beaming presence of God and rest in the embrace of Christ. Call not this death. It is life. It is life. Well, friends, that's it precisely. You embrace the words of Jesus, and you'll never see death. That's why I almost always say at funerals, Christians die as if they're going to go right on living. But friends, if you don't embrace these words, you must reject Jesus as the devil of hell. Would you think again about the absolute audacity of Jesus' claims? So imagine that visitor to our church again. He comes into this assembly, and he says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Well, far from embracing Jesus' words, the Jews become even more indignant and they insist even more urgently that Jesus has a demon or he's demon-possessed, verse 52. 
The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Friends, can you just really just picture the scene in your mind's eye? Our sympathies, of course, lie with Jesus. We know he's God. And we know that very soon he's going to prove his deity by resurrecting from the grave. And the fact is, we like to glamorize the past. And paintings of Jesus, artists will often just put a little halo around his head, so he likes the Jesus figure in the paint, right? But you have, you have to look at the scene in the eyes of the Jews in the first century before Jesus has gone to his cross and resurrected. Yes, Jesus performed many miracles, but so could the prophets, right? Jesus is an ordinary Jewish man with no formal education. He has a contemptible Galilean accent. And his appearance, as Isaiah predicted, was not handsome. There is no halo hanging over this porcelain face. This is a rough human carpenter from Galilee who shows up in Jerusalem claiming to be the water of life and the light of the world. And if you trust him, you will never die. Well, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Moses, David, Abraham, in fact, no Jewish prophet ever, ever made these kinds of claims. So who is this person? Again, just imagine an ordinary American walking into our church building and telling us this. So our trouble is that we, we read the gospel narratives with the outcome in view. We know all the rest of the story. And we know that Jesus is going to resurrect and he's going to ascend to the throne at the end. It all makes perfect sense. But don't forget that Jesus' closest friends, even John the Baptist and the disciples, really struggled to understand his true identity. Are you he that should come or do we look for another? You're going to go to the cross and die? No, that will never happen to you, Peter says. But if, in fact, Jesus can grant life to those who are dying, he is superior to Abraham. It's got to be. Abraham died. Abraham died some 2,000 years earlier. And if you think about Abraham, here's what the Jews thought about him. He is a life-giving progenitor to the entire Jewish nation. That's how they think of him. He lived on in his children. His bloodline was alive and expanding. But Abraham himself was dead and buried. But again, if Jesus claims, if his claims are true, that he is just categorically different than one of the most revered people in all of Jewish history, he is greater than Abraham. It's no wonder the Jews just cry, who do you make yourself out to be? Now, we all like to assume that we would have taken Jesus aside. Right? But I think that's sheer hubris. And I suspect that many of us will be asking the same question that the Jews put to Jesus at this point in his ministry. The disciples, too, were stunned at many points along the way. Well, what is he saying? Who is he? And it's curious that Jesus, at this point, does not answer the question directly. Once again, he is just content to leave the matter to the Father. So he answers this way, verse 54. And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself... My glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Well, at this point, Jesus is willing to patiently wait on God's timing. God will vindicate Jesus in due course. He will glorify his Son. 
Jesus knows good and well who he is. Right? There's no reason he has to glorify himself at this point. The Father will glorify Jesus soon enough. But friends, when exactly will God the Father glorify Jesus? So we know the outcome. So when does this happen? I've actually mentioned this a couple of times previously, so I'll not belabor it. Let's actually turn to John chapter 17 momentarily. The truth is, as you move close to the end of John's Gospel, you get a greater emphasis on the glorification of the Son by the Father. In chapter 17, now, we're coming close to the end of Jesus' life. In fact, very close. In John 17, the triumphal entry is behind us. And so, too, are many of the events of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. Jesus, in John 17, is now in the upper room. He's gathered there with his disciples. And his crucifixion is not coming within days. And not even within a day. It's coming within hours. And that's when Jesus prays the words of verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, here it is again, glorify me in your own presence, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So question, when did God give Jesus all authority over flesh, as he claims here? When did God give Jesus the right to grant eternal life to all who were given to him? Back in John 8, the Jews wanted to know why Jesus thought he would give people eternal life. Like, why do you think he could do this? And Jesus says, well, the Father will glorify me in due course. But here in chapter 17, Jesus now says, the hour has come. Hour has come for him to grant eternal life and have authority over all flesh. The hour of his glory has come. But in chapter 17 and verse 1, Jesus is staring down a cross and into the abyss of a dark grave from which he will soon resurrect. Friends, God glorified Jesus through his death and through his resurrection. Through death and resurrection, Jesus returned to the glorified presence of God. When Jesus was in the upper room, he is, he is on the verge, we're on the verge of being utterly glorified by the Father. But what follows is death. And what follows is resurrection. And the other phrase that John's Gospel uses for this glorification is the phrase, lifted up. And we need to look at the references, as we have done previously, that Jesus being lifted up in John. The lifting up of Jesus actually refers to him being hoisted up on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth. 
His humiliation was his exaltation. His shame was his glory. His degradation was his glorification. And Jesus claimed in John 12 and verse 32, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's where the whole story is headed. That's the glorification. So turn back now to John chapter 8, where the Jews still understand none of this. How could they? They don't even know who his father is. If they don't know the father, how could they possibly know how it is the father will glorify Jesus? Right? If they don't know the father, how could they know how the father is going to glorify the son? They don't even know him. And that's why Jesus responds so harshly then in verse 55. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. So once again, Jesus comes back to his fundamental point. This whole conversation just keeps coming back to two possibilities. Right? Either Jesus is a demon, a child of the devil, and therefore a liar, or the Jews are the children of the devil, and therefore they are the liars. Somebody's lying here. Jesus does not concede. He doesn't back down an inch. Now, at this point, you almost wonder if the conversation just ended right there. Was angry Jews might have just retreated and regrouped and come at Jesus another time. It's really impossible to say. But remember, they already, already tried to rest and it didn't work. But Jesus doesn't leave the conversation right there. Bold as a lion, Jesus just suddenly escalates the whole conversation to a crescendo. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Friends, what exactly did Abraham foresee out there? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. What did he see out there? And the answer is we don't know exactly. Some have suggested that God actually disclosed to Abraham secrets of the coming messianic age. That perhaps God revealed more to Abraham than we have a record of back in Genesis. And that's that's possible. We just would have no way of knowing for him. How would you know? It's not revealed. Others have suggested that Abraham was looking forward more generally to the day when God did indeed bless all the nations through his offspring, just as he had promised. Maybe Abraham did not have seen Jesus, but he was just looking forward in some way to this future, of this sort of universal blessing which Jesus brought. But whatever the reference means, the Jews probably were not offended by the notion of Abraham's foresight. That's not the issue. Where is the issue? The offense undoubtedly begins with Jesus' use of a personal pronoun. My. Whatever messianic, prosperous future Abraham envisioned, Jesus took possession of it with the word my. The future belongs to me. It was my day that Abraham foresaw. 
is mine. You see that word? Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. The messianic day, yeah, that's my day. It belongs to me. Now, the Jews' response to Jesus was to deliberately misinterpret what he claimed. You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus, of course, was not implying that he was Abraham's contemporary in a physical, bodily sense. That would make Jesus more than 2,000 years old. But we know in his humanity, he was in his early 30s, younger, of course, than Mary and Joseph. So the Jews here using a round figure suggesting, well, you're not even 50. So how can you claim to be a 2,000-year-old man? That's essentially what they're saying. However, Jesus picks up on their deliberate misinterpretation to segue into a yet more radical claim. Before Abraham was, I am. And that statement electrified the Jews. Not only was Jesus declaring himself the older than Abraham, he just used God's name. In the Greek, it's I am, or it's Yahweh. I am. Quite literally, he identifies himself directly with Yahweh, who, of course, lived long before Abraham into eternity past. Jesus was claiming to be none other than God. And we have looked at this name previously. You know that in Exodus, God revealed this name dramatically at the burning bush. Friends, God has many, many titles. But truly, God has one name. My name is I am that I am. I am. This was the most sacred word the Jews knew. In fact, they often wouldn't even breathe it out. It was so sacred to them. Yahweh, their covenant-keeping God. And Jesus just claimed the name for himself. And do the Jews understand the implication of what he has just claimed? Yes, immediately, verse 59, they picked up stones and sought to murder him. So once again, friends, neutrality is not an option when you are confronted with Jesus. My friends, in conclusion, I could actually conclude this sermon two ways. In fact, let me do both. I could, first of all, offer an appeal to any lost person in the room to consider once again the words of Jesus. This is indeed an appropriate application. Would you consider, friend, whether you might be mistaken about Jesus? Perhaps you've heard this name all your life. And perhaps you have a good estimation of him. Perhaps you've come from a culture where there's not a lot of talk about Jesus and you want to find out more about Jesus. I don't know. But friend, if you think that Jesus was really a good teacher or a world-class philosopher like Socrates, or another great prophet like Muhammad or Gandhi, and I just say as clearly as I know how, you are completely mistaken about him. Completely, 
utterly mistaken about Jesus. Socrates, Muhammad, Gandhi, any great philosopher you can think of, they never spoke like Jesus. Listen to his words. Listen to what he says. They never claim to be the God, Yahweh, incarnate in human flesh. So my appeal to you is to consider again the words of Jesus. Neutrality is not an option. But I should also make an appeal to every believer. You have not become disciples of a man who is merely a good teacher or a revolutionary prophet. That's not, that's not who you have become discipled to, apprenticed to. You have come to a, to a man in faith because you believed him to be God. And how does the world respond to that man? Well, clearly they wanted to crush his skull, to collapse his lungs and splatter his blood and his brains in the streets. And six months later, they finally succeed in convincing the Romans to crucify him. So, what does that mean for you as a believer? They crucified him. Well, the same apostle who penned this gospel, the Gospel of John, would later write an epistle. He wrote this epistle to disciples like you and me. Listen to what he said. In 1 John 3 and verse 13, he said this, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hits you. Do not be surprised, brothers, sisters, that the world hates you. You are following a man they sought to destroy. Later in John's Gospel, the upper room, Jesus himself will say to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Let me read that again. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, friend, opposition may come this week in the workplace. It may come from a neighbor or a family member. Christians being opposed by totalitarian regimes this week. That will happen. Teenagers, you may be mocked by your friends or your classmates. Teens can be very harsh, vindictive, and downright mean uh, to Christians. Remember having jobs in high school and just being mocked. Once people found out I went to Christian high school. You're one of those Christians, huh? So, friends, do not be surprised. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But that same world dismissed Jesus as a demon. Jesus chose you out of this world. So, friend, do not grow faint and weary and lose heart if the world hates you. These are the words of Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you. I chose you 
out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we pray, Father, we pray that you would in fact strengthen believers today, prepare us for any opposition we may receive this week. Lord, we pray even for the youngest among us, who may be ridiculed following Christ. We pray for our teenagers. We have friends that we mocked them even this week for following Christ. We pray for our people in the workplace this week. We may have somebody here that gets passed over for promotion because they follow you, follow Christ. We may have somebody who is going to have to have a very difficult conversation with a loved one this week. They may have to deal with a boss who despises their Christianity. Lord, we pray that this message today would really encourage and help them, strengthen them. We thank you, Lord, that the love of Christ is so much greater, infinitely greater, than the love of the world. We pray that you would cause us, Lord, to share some love of Christ. And Lord, for the unbeliever here today, we pray that man or woman would truly see the love of Christ that drove him to a cross. And that love that even now will rescue that person from his or her sins. We pray that even today might be the day of liberation of sin for someone here and that he or she might embrace the words of Jesus. We pray for Christ's sake.